So we are going to be examining two cases under the transformative impact of the Constitution on the law of civil procedure. And these cases are Jafda and, Gun and uh, Gunduana, right? And you will see that the Jafda case in your course outline is recommended reading. So your explanation of your Jafda case in your course notes together with the summary of the Gunduana and Jafda judgments that I have prepared for you is quite comprehensive, right? Notwithstanding this, I'm going to strongly, strongly urge you to read the Jafta judgment. And the reason why I'm saying this is that these are the skills that you need to develop in order to succeed as a law student with your law degree. You need to begin reading judgments and being able to, to identify the important issues and be able to identify the court's re reasoning and what the relevant pieces of law that is coming out of the judgment is, right? And so you'll only do yourself a major favor if you actually take this opportunity with the Jafta judgment to familiarize with the, yourself with the judgment and to compare the judgment against your core notes and against my summaries to see if you have a proper understanding of the judgment. So I'm not going to lecture further than that. I'm now going to proceed to look at the Jafta decision. So now, the Jafta decision concerned the uh, the laws, in particular the Magistrates' Courts Act uh, rules and laws around uh, the the executing against immovable property, right? So what the process was in the through the Magistrates' Court Act at the time was that if a judgment creditor, right, had applied for a warrant of execution against the judgment debtor, right? So the judgment creditor uh, had uh, obtained default judgment, rather. Should I start again? Let me start again. So we, the judgment creditor is successful in their matter by virtue of a default judgment. So the judgment debtor failed to put in a notice of intention to defend, right? In those situations, what had happened under the, the law at the time was that the clerk of the court was then in a position to issue the judgment creditor with a warrant of execution, right? Which she would then address to the sheriff of the court or he would address to the sheriff of the court. And this would allow the sheriff of the court where the property that was the subject of the debt was bonded, right? So the property was a subject of a bond by the bank, right? So the creditor, the debtor had taken out a bond in order to pay off the immovable property. So in the situations, the clerk of the court, right, where the judgment debtor had applied for a warrant of execution, sorry, the judgment creditor had applied for a warrant of execution, the clerk of the court could issue a warrant of execution against the immovable property of the judgment debtor, right, and could instruct the sheriff of the court to go and attach the immovable property of the judgment debtor in order to make good on the judgment debt, right? So what did happen was that ordinarily the, the clerk of the court would issue a warrant and the warrant of execution would be against the movable property and the sheriff would go and the sheriff would see is there a sufficient amount of movable property and if there is a sufficient amount of movable property, then the sheriff would uh, sell that in execution and that would be it, right? But where there was not a sufficient amount of movable property, the sheriff could come back and then a further 
warrant of execution would be issued and this time it would be against the immovable property and then the sheriff would sell the immovable property in order to recover the monies, uh, outstanding monies for the debt. So in this situations where the property was subject to a bond, right, the clerk of the court was empowered, right, to issue a warrant of execution or where the, the movable properties were not enough in other situations where there wasn't a bond involved, the clerk could issue a warrant of execution, right, against the immovable property of the judgment debtor. And so what this meant was that the court itself would never have an opportunity to see the case, to see the circumstances of the case, to examine the circumstances of the debtor, to examine the circumstances of the creditor, to examine the circumstances of the debtor. A court, a presiding officer, a magistrate would never have the chance to look at all of those factors because what would happen was it'd be a default judgment. The clerk then was obliged to issue a warrant of execution. If the property was bonded, the clerk would issue a warrant of execution against the immovable property. Otherwise, the court would well, issue a warrant of execution against the movable property. And if the movable property, the court is, the clerk is satisfied that the movable property is not enough to cover the debt, the, court, the clerk of the court could then issue a warrant of execution against the immovable property of the judgment debtor. Right? Either way, Right, the ultimate effect of these provisions of the Magistrates Court Act was that the clerk of the court, in the event that there was a judgment, uh, a default judgment, was empowered under the Magistrates uh, Courts Act to issue a warrant of execution against a judgment debtor's immovable property. And a court of law, a magistrate, a presiding officer would never actually ever see the matter. So the impact of that on the judgment debtor would be that that property would be sold in execution in order to cover the outstanding judgment debt without a presiding officer, a magistrate ever having seen the case, right? And this could potentially result in someone uh, having their home sold in execution without a judge ever having considered the particular circumstances relevant to their case. And so the court was asked to examine the constitutionality of this rule to the extent that it allowed for sale and execution of immovable property by default judgment without the involvement of a presiding officer and where it could render the judgment debtor homeless. And the court ultimately found that this constituted a violation of Section 26 of the Constitution, right? And Section 26 of the Constitution is the housing provision. And the housing provision states that no one may be evicted from their home. So it first says everyone has the right of access to housing in Section 26.1. And then Section 26.3 says no one may be evicted from their home without a um, court order in which the presiding officer has considered all the relevant circumstances. So the court said that this magistrate's court rule that allowed for the clerk of the court to issue a warrant of execution to the sheriff to attach immovable property that was someone's home without a presiding officer ever having looked at the matter was a violation of section 26 
of the constitution, a violation of that judgment debtor's right of access to housing and a violation of their right not to be evicted from their home without the presiding officer looking at all of the relevant circumstances. So, so the court found that this particular rule that allowed for the matter to go ahead and the property be, to be executed, the immovable property to be ex executed, constitute a violation of 26 because a judicial officer was never involved in the process. So the court ultimately looks at apartheid and the court says, if we look at apartheid, we see how black people were subjected to the humiliation of these mass force removals, right? And how they were taken and had their homes taken away from them. And the indignity that they suffered. So you'll see this concept of dignity always shining through in uh, you or, or when you are looking at transformative constitutionalism, right? And what the court says is that black people suffered this indignity under apartheid. And this is the relevant history against which Section 26 of the Constitution must be understood. Because when you are understanding rights in the Constitution, we must always look at what the history is. So the court says that the right to housing must be understood against this history of the indignity that black people suffered when they had their homes demolished and taken away from them and stolen from them. And the court explains that Section 26 was meant to address this apartheid evil. And the court says as a result of that, a presiding officer must be in a position to look over the case, must be obliged to look over a case where a judgment debtor's house, house a judgment debtor's home could be potentially attached in order to make good on a judgment debt. So 20, section 26 meant that in every instance where a judgment debtor's home could be attached, that immovable property could be attached to satisfy a judgment debt, section 26 meant that a presiding officer had to examine the matter first before a warrant of execution was decided on, right? And what the, the court went on to do in chapter was that the court set out a number of relevant factors that a presiding officer who is now seized with the matter, who is faced with a case like this, who must decide whether or not to grant the order and the warrant of execution, the court said that this presiding officer must take into account a number of factors, right? And those factors include the amount of the debt outstanding. So you'll see uh, in the facts of... of, of uh, the Jafta decision, right? The Jafta decision is actually two cases from the lower courts that the Constitutional Court had joined together because they were very similar cases. And if you go and look at the facts of uh, Ms. Van Royen and you go and look at the circumstances of Ms. Jafta, you will see in there that the amount of money that they owed was such a little money in comparison to uh, the amount of money that they eventually had to pay and in uh, comparison to the amount of money that their homes were ultimately sold for. So if I recall correctly, I think Ms. Van Royen's debt, which she had taken out in order to pay vegetables, at the time that her property was executed on, the amount uh, of the judgment debt outstanding was something like 198 rand. So we're talking a ridiculously little amount of money in order to satisfy a tiny debt where an immovable property is placed on sale in execution just so that this judgment debt could be covered. Right. So the next thing we're going to be, that the court has to look at is whether there are reasonable alternatives. So yes, there is uh, the attachment of the movable property, but 
for instance, for instance, is there a possibility that the debtor can uh, enter into some kind of an installment arrangement with the creditor? Can we come up with some payment plan? Can we come up with some alternative solution that is a reasonable solution that would, would ultimately allow the judgment debtor to satisfy the debt owed to the judgment creditor? Another factor that the court says must be taken into account is whether the judgment creditor is trying to abuse the process, is trying to manipulate the process of obtaining a warrant of execution and executing against the immovable property. And it was clear from the circumstances in the Jafta decision that the creditors against Ms. Jafta and Ms. Van Rooyen were clearly taking, trying to take advantage of the fact that these were vulnerable women, these were poor women, these were women who were not familiar with their particular rights under the Constitution and not familiar with court processes. And there was a clear attempt to abuse the court process in these in those cases, right? So one of the relevant factors is do we have suspect, do we have ruthless, do we have some horrible creditors who are merely trying to use the court processes and use the process of attaching um, someone's home, uh, executing against someone's home for their own dodgy purposes, right? So another thing that the court will look at is the, the bona fides on the side of the judgment data. So had the judgment data made attempts, made uh, uh, taken steps in order to pay, in order to cover, in order to make good on those debts, were these steps taken on the side of the judgment data? And you will see, I think it is in the in Ms. Jafta's instance, that there were steps taken on Ms. Jafta's side to try and pay a debt, even after the warrant had been issued and that the bank nevertheless proceeded against her, right? So another relevant factor is were the attempts made to pay the debt, right? Another question is, was your particular judgment uh, debtor reckless when they'd incurred this debt? Did they go on a shopping spree? Did they know that there would be these huge consequences for them and they'd never be able to pay it and they were just reckless in their spending, right? So another factor relevant that the court must take into consideration is whether your judgment debtor in incurring the debt was reckless and, and knew what the consequences were and reconciled themselves and said, ah, I don't care about the consequences, right? And so another thing that the court will look at is did the debtor choose to use their home as security in order to obtain money. So something that the court recognizes that in our economic life, right, in everyday economic transactions, a house, a home is a valuable asset. And it's such a valuable asset, particularly for poor people, because a home can be used as security in order to obtain capital, right, in order to perhaps start a business or in order to secure more money. But it's in essence, a home is an empowering asset because it, allow, it can stand as security for a debt. And so when someone willingly uses their home as security for a debt, right, the court should be cautious to say that that person's home shouldn't be held on the line, right? So one of the questions, but it's not the only relevant factor because this is a balancing process. And one factor is not necessarily going to be stronger than another factor. But one of the questions that the court said it will ask itself, or it should ask itself, a presiding officer should ask, did the judgment debtor willingly use their home as security in order to pay off a debt? Right. Now, one of the most important factors that a presiding officer must take into consideration is what the impact of execution of the immovable property of the debtor's home would have on the debtor. Right. So one of the questions. So as mentioned, 
an important thing that the presiding officer will look at will look at is what's the impact of executing on someone's home, right? What impact does it have on the data? And factors that the court will consider includes what the financial circumstances are of the data. So do we have an indigent data? Do we have a poor data? Do we have a data that potentially could be rendered homeless in the event that the sale of execution would take place, right? Because that would have huge implications for that person's right to access housing, and the court said that another thing that must be considered is the the possibility of the debtor being able to make good on the debt. Does the debtor have another source of income that the debtor can use in order to make good on the debt? So the impact on the debtor and the prejudice on the debtor and the hardship that could potentially be suffered by the debtor are huge factors that the court must take into consideration in determining whether or not uh, the property should be executed against, right? The immovable property of the judgment data should be executed against. But then in Jafter, the court also points out that this is a balancing process and that we cannot ignore the interests of the creditor, right? So the court might also take into account the financial circumstances of the creditor. Are we dealing with a big bank here or are we dealing with a creditor who themselves desperately needs the money, right? So the financial circumstances of the creditor is also relevant because ultimately what the presiding officer is going to be doing is that the presiding officer is going to be engaging in this balancing process where the presiding officer on the one hand is looking at the interests and the impact on the judgment debtor in the event that the immovable property that makes up their home is executed, um, sold in sale of execution and what the impact on the judgment creditor would be if the court does not allow for that immovable property to be sold in execution. And ultimately, it is possible that the creditor's interest might outweigh the debtor's interest. And it is possible that the debtor's interest might outweigh the creditor's interest. But what is most important is that the decision on whether the property should be executed on should be made on a case-by-case -case basis with the oversight of the presiding officer who must take into account all these relevant factors that we've listed what the amount of the debt is, are there reasonable alternatives to cover the debt, is the creditor using the court processes and abusing the court processes to try and cover the debt, has the debtor made attempts to pay, was the debtor reckless in incurring the debt, did the debtor willingly use the, 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 the property, the immovable property, in order to, to use it as security in order to obtain a loan, right? And very importantly, what prejudice or impact Executing on that immovable property would have on that data. Are we dealing with an unemployed data? Are we dealing with a, a data who's ignorant of their own rights, who cannot even come to court? What type of data are we dealing with here? Does this data have another source of income with which the data can pay off the debt? And most importantly, would the data be rendered homeless? Because remember, Section 26 was meant to give dignity to those who would otherwise have been have otherwise suffered indignity as a result or who did suffer indignity as a result of apartheid because remember section 26 is intended to address this apartheid evil of mass evictions and 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 uh, land insecurity that was suffered by black people so an important question that the court will have to ask itself is Will a sale in execution of this immovable property render this person homeless? Because you will see in the Jafta case that the houses we're talking about are state houses, that these poor people, these poor women, these indigent women were able to come onto housing, 
through a state subsidy. And if that property were to be executed on, it was highly likely or it was probably going to happen that these women would never again have the opportunity to call a house a home. They would never again have this dignity. And so whether or not the judgment debtor would be rendered homeless is such an important factor the presiding officer will take into account. And of course, like we had mentioned, the presiding officer will also take the financial interests of the of the, the financial situation of the credit into account. And then the presiding officer will engage in this balancing process and will weigh what are the creditors' interests here, what are the debtors' interests here, what is the impact on the creditor, what is the impact on the uh, on the on the um, judgment debtor? Can we make another arrangement? Is there a reasonable alternative to be found? And all of these different things are going to be weighed up ultimately by the presiding officer, and the presiding officer will ultimately make a decision. So you will see that our law of civil procedure has now developed so that a law, so that a clerk, a magistrate's clerk sitting in the magistrate's court does not have the discretion or the authority or the power to allow for a warrant of execution against someone's home without the involvement of a presiding officer. And this is because of the protections afforded by Section 26 of the Constitution.